Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Hey, we are going to be in three areas of Scripture. You'll see it on the screen in just a moment. The first of which is Revelation. Revelation chapter chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. As well as Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. And you also want to put your finger into 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Once again, I'll give you those Scripture. You'll see them on the screen. Revelation chapter 3, Colossians chapter 4, and 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So good to be with you guys today. Looking forward to what the Lord has for Calvary Chapel South Bay in our future together. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? Father, we want to prepare our hearts to hear spiritual things with spiritual ears. And so, Holy Spirit, we can do nothing without you. So we're asking that you would fill us all now. Would you give us spiritual ears to hear and a spiritual mind to understand? Because I believe, Lord, that you have a word for all of us. And I pray that we would be listeners and doers. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're ever wondering what Jesus might say to you, wonder no more. All you have to do is read the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3. It's his direct message to his bride. It is direct communication from the throne room straight to your heart. And in Revelation chapter 3, we're going to read of a church that he writes to, but I don't want you to assume that it's just to this church. Because the Bible says in Revelation 2 and 3, he who has ears to hear. In other words, this is written to the whole church. It's written to Calvary Chapel South Bay. And so even though we might be talking about Theatira or Sardis or Philadelphia, maybe Ephesus or Smyrna, this message is to our church. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to pick it up there in verse 7. Revelation chapter 3 verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right, to the pastor, to the messenger, to the church in Philadelphia, I've got a message. Now, let's back up just a little bit and remember, Philadelphia is an old town. It's been around probably about a couple of hundred years prior to the time that this letter was written. It was built by a guy by the name of Attalus II, and he had a dream. His dream was that Philadelphia would be a missionary city, a city that would not give God to the world, not give Jesus to the world because he had not come yet. No, this was a missionary city for the Greek culture, that Hellenism, the Greek culture, would spread throughout the world through this particular city. Now, church, I want you to keep that in mind, that Jesus is writing the missionary church to the missionary city. Keep the heartbeat of this city in your mind, because Jesus is about to redeem it. Now, look how he introduces himself. These things says he, he who is holy, he who is true. 
There's a reason why Jesus introduces himself the way that he chooses to do to every church. And he goes on to say, he who has the key of David. Now this is a phrase that Jesus is borrowing from Isaiah 22. In fact, it actually helps us understand Isaiah 22 because Isaiah, for the one and only time that he does, he actually rebukes a named individual in Isaiah, 20, 20, in, in Isaiah 22. And it's a little bit out of Isaiah's way of doing things. But there in Isaiah 22, there's a guy by the name of Shebna. Now let me tell you about Shebna. Shebna was the key holder. Let me tell you something about a key holder. If I was to give you the key to my truck, you would have the authority to take it if you want to. Now, I could probably get upset with you, and that's why I don't ever leave the key when I go to a a men's conference or a pastor's conference in my drawer because my 16-year-old son can drive now, and sometimes he thinks he can have the authority even though he doesn't have it. So I always take the key with me. If I was to give you the key to my house... You would have the authority to go into my house and deal with my two dogs. Now, I would encourage you, if I give you the key, don't go today. Sunday, the bed's not made. I haven't done the dishes. My wife's not made the bed. We are focused on ministering and loving the body here at South Bay and for the last several years at Coast Hills Church. Now, understand, if you've got the key, you've got the authority. And Shebna had the keys. He was Hezekiah's chief steward. But he had not been faithful with the authority. And so God tells Isaiah, tell Shebna, we're taking the key of David from you, that key of authority, and we are giving it to Eliakim. And Eliakim is going to now be the chief steward, and he's going to have the keys. Do you remember when you were in elementary school, and the janitor would come by, and he had all the keys to every room, and you thought, wow, is he Santa with that jingle, jingle, jingle coming down into the cafeteria? But you would look at this and be wowed by the amount of keys that he had. He had so much authority to get into every room. And that's exactly what Jesus is communicating. You see, all of a sudden, Isaiah 22 makes sense. Because as Eliakim had the authority, physical authority, over every room in King Hezekiah's uh, palace, in his storerooms, no matter where it was, Jesus has the spiritual authority here on earth. And that was important for Philadelphia because they were suffering. In fact, Jesus will go on to say that the people they were suffering from, he calls them the synagogue of Satan. Their own Jewish brothers and sisters were turning them in because they were no longer Jewish. They were suffering. And I don't know about you, but in the midst of suffering is the time when I usually question God, do you see me? Do you understand what I'm going through? Do you know that my rent is due? And God in that moment says, I'm the authority. I got the keys. I know what you're going through. I know what I'm doing. And I am faithful. He's saying to this church, this suffering church, going through a trial, I want to remind you, I am the authority. What a comfort for us in the midst of trial. But he goes on to say, not only does he have the key of David, he says, he who opens and no one shuts 
and shuts and no one opens. Have you ever heard the, heard the phrase closed countries? Like the Middle East. You can't go there as a missionary because it's a closed country. Now let me let you know something about my personality. When you tell me I can't do something, but my God has said that I can, what you say don't matter to me. So when I hear closed country, oh, God put the nation of Iran on my heart. In the year 2000, I knew in a matter of fact that God wanted me to go to Tehran. And I started speaking to people about going to the nation of Iran. They laughed at me. It's a closed country. I didn't understand that. If Jesus has the keys to death in Hades, so he has conquered death. He's got the authority over death in Hades. Don't tell Jesus Iran is closed to believers. Don't tell him that. Because I'm convinced that when you tell Jesus he can't do something, he goes, really? Watch this. I'm about to part the Red Sea. You don't think I can do this, Moses? Take a look at what I'm about to do. I'm going to blow your mind. You don't think I can pay your rent? (laughs) Wait till the money drops from heaven. Watch what I do. You don't think I can heal? You don't think I can take care? What? Now, I know God's not that petty and he's got a bigger plan. But the point is, there's nothing our God can't do. And there's no door he can't open. And there's no door that he can't shut. And so I found my way on my way to Iran because God told me to go. And I don't care what you say about a closed country. I found my way and I landed in Amsterdam. And while I was in Amsterdam, after much fasting and much prayer, the guy that was going to go with me canceled. And I didn't even know till I got to Amsterdam. Now, Jesus says, go two by two. And I'm wondering in Amsterdam, do I go to Iran by myself? As I'm boarding the plane, I'm shaking in my knees going, Lord, I hope you're my other two because the other two didn't show up. I get in the airplane and you should have seen the Iranians. When I'm fasting, I've been praying, I'm sitting in that airplane, and while I'm there, the pilot goes on the, on the airline and he says, we are now entering Iranian airspace. All of a sudden, every woman stood up, took out their black garment, threw it around them, and then put the hood on. And I thought to myself, girl, you were just wearing Gucci, and then you just go turn, put this thing over, uh, over your Gucci. Let me tell you something. I can tell you what's underneath that black garb. Gucci, Prada, Guess, you name it, they're wearing it all. Gold, the whole nine yards. It's just when they were coming into Iranian airspace, they had to cover themselves. And then we land. And I can feel my stomach turning. I'm so nervous. I get in the immigration line and I realize one of these things do not look like the other. Blonde hair, blue eyes, wearing blue and khaki. They're all in dark coats, okay, Middle Eastern look, Persian look, and here I am in my blonde hair, blue eyes, blue and khaki. One of these things did not look like the other. In front of me in the immigration line is a Scottish fellow, and they reject him and deport him right in front of me, escort him right back to the airplane. I'm next. I'm thinking I'm going back in the airplane with the Scottish fella. So I hand him my passport. Now I need to let you know something. I'm a Bahamian. I gave him my Bahamian passport. Now let me tell you something. I'm more Bahamian than I am American, but I'm telling you, man, I'm a Bahamian, boy. Now you might think, wow, that's quite an accent. This is the accent. I'm doing this for you to understand me. 
So I handed him my Bahamian passport. He'd never heard of the Bahamas before in his life. He's looking up the Bahamas. I'm trying to explain. It's an island. Now, you know when you don't think someone understands you? Like, you actually think that they're now dumb. So you, like, slow down and speak louder. Island. It's not that they can't hear you. They don't understand you, no matter what you say or how you say it. So he can't find the Bahamas. He's never heard of it before. He gets so frustrated. He takes out his stamp. He stamps my passport. And I grab and I go, thank you, Jesus. Guess the door is open. So now I'm in Tehran. I'm going to pick up my bag. I have no idea the guy. I've never met him before in my life. All I see is some guy waving at me. He's seen my picture before. So I'm thinking, that's the guy. So I wave. And I'm like, am I walking to my death? Like, what's about to happen? And I go to shake his hand. This other guy grabs me by the arm and he pulls me off to the side because this was the real guy. I was walking to the wrong guy. So he pulls me. He, I'm thinking, great, I'm about to go to jail. Like, I thought I got through, but I'm not. They know I'm a Christian and they're going to kill me. Like, I, you should have imagined what was going on in my mind. He takes me to his car, tells me I'm the guy, takes my phone from me. He takes the SIM chip out, wraps it in tinfoil, wraps it in his jacket, throws my phone in his uh, trunk of his car and says, we're going to leave it there till you leave. That's how they live. And God said, Chet, you're going to Iran. And everyone else said, it's a closed country. And God says, Nobody can shut a door that I've opened for you. I got the keys. I got the keys. The church. This is what he says to this church. Now take a look what he says in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to pick it up there in verse 8. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your work. I love this. Out of the seven churches, there are two churches that Jesus does not rebuke, and Philadelphia is one of them. Smyrna is the other. It's the persecuted church. But Jesus says to this church, I know your work, and let me fill in the blank. I know your work of faith. And the reason why I know it's faith is because without faith, it's impossible to please God, and he's a rewarder to those who diligently seek him. And he's about to give this church the greatest reward that a church could ever ask for. The greatest reward that a faithful church could ever ask for. You see, this was the faith-filled church. This church, this church was driven by prayer, not by policy or procedures. This church was a spirited church, not a scripted church or a programmed church. This church, this church was led by conviction. We are going to stand for Jesus Christ no matter what. And even though the synagogue of Satan turns us over to the Romans, we are going to be led by our convictions, not by our convenience. This was a committed church. This was not a complacent church. This was the church of Philadelphia. And Jesus says, I know your work. And he's about to give them the greatest gift that a faithful church would ever want. Would you take a look? I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door. There's the gift. You see, doors are very important in our faith. 
Very important in the Christian faith. Let me tell you why. I'm going to have to take you all the way back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. Now you know the story. Maybe not the chapter. I understand. It's the celebration of Passover. If you remember, it's Exodus chapter 12. You can look it up later. Write it down in your notes. God told Moses, tell the children of Israel, sacrifice a lamb. Take the blood of that lamb and wipe the blood on the doorpost of your door. So when the angel of death comes into Egypt, he will see the blood and pass over your door and your firstborn son will be saved. You see, to the Jewish person, a door is an opportunity for salvation. In fact, today, if you go into a Jewish home, so important is the door. Right on the side of the door, they have what is called a mezuzah. And they touch their lips and they touch the mezuzah as they walk into their home. A door. It's why in John chapter 12, you can write it down. Excuse me, John chapter 10. John chapter 10, Jesus would say in verse 7... I am the door. And what he was saying in the same way the door was an opportunity of salvation for you is the same way I am the way of salvation. My blood is going to allow you entrance into the kingdom. Doors are important in our faith. And the Apostle Paul knew that. And there are three things about doors that the Apostle Paul teaches us that I want you to write down. The first one is this, pray for open doors. Would you write that down in your notes? Pray for open doors. It's Colossians chapter 4. I ask you to keep your finger there. Go there with me now if you would. Colossians chapter 4, I'm going to pick it up in verse 2. Colossians chapter 4, our first point, pray for open doors. Verse 2. Continue earnestly, Paul says, in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, listen carefully, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. This was the heartbeat of the first century church. And I want you to see what Paul is asking the church to pray for him for. He's not saying, pray that I get wealthy, as the 21st century church. He's not praying for wealth and health. He's not praying for fame or success. He's not praying for anything else because he's faithful. He's asking God, help me advance the kingdom, God. And he's asking the church, would you help me pray that God would use me for an open door? That was the heart of the first century church. That was the heart that they had. That's why Philadelphia, God knows this faithful church, what they were praying for was, Lord, open up doors for us. And God answers their prayer and says, I know your works, I know you're faithful, and I have opened up a door for you. Church, are you praying for open doors? Are you praying for torrents to open up for the gospel? Are you praying for Gardena to open up for the gospel? 
Are you praying for San Pedro to open up for the gospel? Are you praying for Hollywood, L.A. to open up for the gospel? Are you praying for your neighbor to open up for the gospel? Are you praying for your cashier at Ralph's to open up for the gospel? Are you praying each and every day that God would open up doors for you for the gospel? That's the heartbeat of a faith-filled church. I have a very faithful friend, and every morning he wakes up, he prays one prayer. Lord Jesus, open a door for me. If I go to the grocery store, open a door. If I go to the gas station, open a door. Open up my eyes that I might see. God, open up a door. Church, are we praying like the Apostle Paul? Open up a door. Number two, would you write it down? Recognize open doors. Recognize open doors. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Furthermore, he says, Paul is speaking once again, opening our eyes to open doors. When I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. Keep that in mind. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Did you read that? I went there to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me. Now, Paul doesn't let us know the door that was opened. And I think that's so important. Because God will reveal to you an open door if you open up your eyes to see it. Number two, recognize open doors. You see, the reason why Paul was able to recognize it is because Paul saw things spiritually. Paul saw things with spiritual eyes, not just physical eyes, not just material eyes. When he went to Ralph's, he was looking for open doors. When he went to Taco Bell, he was looking for open doors. When he went to the library to work, no matter where he went, he was looking for the Lord to open up a door. Let me give you a story to help you understand this. It's John chapter 4. Jesus is ministering to the Samaritan woman. He has sent the disciples into the Samaritan village, and he sent them there, and they were hungry to go and get some food. And so he's there ministering to the Samaritan, uh, Samaritan woman. Now, let me tell you something about the Samaritans and the Jews. They didn't like each other, okay, at all. In fact, Jews used to call Samaritans dogs, okay? Not a great name, okay? And when Jesus was being accused, you know what the Jewish council called him? A Samaritan. It was like the worst thing you could have called a Jewish person, Okay? Now, just imagine the disciples going into Samaria to go to Ralph's. Okay, I can just imagine Simon. Don't touch anything. It's Samaritans. Did you bring the hand sanitizer? We are surrounded by these dogs. Like, okay, open the freezer. <laughs> Judas, stop stealing the money. So can just imagine them in the midst of this Ralph's in the Samaritan village, okay? They bought their milk. They bought their bread. They're like, let's get out of here. The whole time, Jesus is ministering to this woman. They come back with their bags of groceries and they're going to cook their bread. They're going to do their fish or whatever they got. (gasps) Jesus is talking to a woman. That's not good. (laughs) Now, they were so intimidating, the woman took off. She literally took off. 
And she runs to the Samaritan village. Come see the man that told me everything I ever did. In the meanwhile, hey, Jesus, you need to eat something. Go ahead, eat. I know you're hungry. I'm not hungry anymore. Well, why? Well, I'm doing the work. And the work of God fills me. I'll never get tired of doing the work of God. I'm in kid life, and I'm, I'm serving in children's ministry. I'm serving on Tuesdays in the women's ministry, and I'm serving as an usher. Oh, I, it gets, I don't even need Subway. I don't need no Taco Bell. I got Jesus, and I'm doing the work of the ministry. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he says to them, I sent you to Samaria to reap a harvest that you didn't labor for. John chapter 4, verse 38. Stop there for a minute. Think about that. I sent you to Ralph's. You thought you needed milk. I sent you to Ralph's to see aisle 7, and you walked right by her. I sent you to CVS to pick up your medication, and there's that 90-year-old man who's on his way to his eternity, and you walked right by him. I sent you to your workplace and you walked right by her. Stop for a minute. He sent them to Samaria. Now, they were hangry. All they wanted was Taco Bell. (laughs) I'm in the drive-thru. Hurry up. I got to get back to Jesus. I'm hungry and I'm not going to eat without Jesus, so give me the bag, and I got to go. Meanwhile, there's the woman in the drive-in in the drive uh, 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 window, and you're giving her your credit card, and Jesus is giving you an opportunity. He's opened up a door. Did you recognize it? You see, this message is part two of a two-part series that I started on Thursday. And on Thursday, it was a message about having a mind to work. And I gave the description, the job description of the church. And there's only two things that the church has a job description for. To preach the gospel and to make disciples. That is the job description of someone in the church. And I need to let you know something. Jesus is not only our Savior. He's also our Lord. Now, let me remind you what that means. He's our boss. We work for him. We don't go to him and say, hey, here's where I'm going. He says to us, here's where you're going. He's our boss. Now, just imagine, you work for him, and this week is your performance evaluation. Two things on the performance evaluation. Are you preaching the gospel? Are you making disciples? That's your job. You're going into your performance evaluation, and he's going to check up on and see if you are preaching the gospel and you are making disciples. Now, don't raise your hand. How many of you would come out of your performance evaluation on probation? And how many of you would come out with a promotion? After the first service, a woman walked up to me and she goes, I'm fired. And I go, you lost your job? She, I know. She goes, yeah, Jesus fired me today. I walked into my performance evaluation. I got fired by Jesus. I go, well, he's a loving boss. He's really, he will work you through it, okay? Like, we're going to get through this together. But she was so sincere saying, I'm fired. Like, I'm not preaching the gospel. I'm not making disciples. And are you missing your opportunity? Now, I'm going to ask you, raise your hand with this one, okay? Raise your hand. 
How many of you are surrounded by people that are on their way to hell on a daily basis? Raise your hand. If you are surrounded, now keep your hand up. Don't put your hand down. How many of you are surrounded by people that are hell bound every day? Now, everyone, look at the hands up. Look at the hands up. Do you see the amount of open doors? Recognize it. Open your eyes to see spiritually that you are a part of God's great plan of helping people have an eternity with him. My wife and I sold our house in Dana Point, and we are buying a place in San Pedro. And so we've been looking. We finally found a place, and I believe that the Lord led us to this place, and God spoke to me, I want you to meet the owner. So my wife and I, we went three days ago, and He's an 85-year-old man. And as soon as I walked in and we sat down and I'm getting ready to meet him, I don't know what it is about me, but being a pastor, people just feel the need to confess. Like, I'll see you guys at CVS. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. I don't know what you did, but God bless you, let's pray. Like, well, I'll see you like coming into church and one of you will go, well, it's her fault. I don't know what her fault is. Well, we argued on the way here. Well, I didn't know that. I was like, God bless you. People do it to me all the time. I don't know if I've got like pastor or like repent point on my forehead, but it always happens. So he starts confessing knowing I'm a pastor. And my wife looked at me and I knew exactly what she was telling me. An open door. And I realized, God, you didn't lead me to this property to buy it. You led me to this property because you were providing an open door. And I watched this hardened 85-year-old man go from a hardness of heart, and we prayed together to a softness of heart. Open door. Open door. God will use property. God will use Ralph's. God will use CVS. He'll use where you are working. Do you recognize open doors? Number three, I want you to write it down. You better expect some opposition. You better expect great opposition. Number three, expect great opposition. Would you flip a page over to the left? Just flip a page over to the left. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 Corinthians 16, take a look at verse 8. 1 Corinthians 16, take a look at verse 8. But I will tarry in Ephesus, Paul is speaking, until Pentecost. For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Calvary Chapel, South Bay, if we want to do great things and open great doors, there will be great opposition. I know many of you got siblings. I have an older sister, and I had a younger brother. My brother was an F-18 fighter pilot. He died giving his life for this country. He, was a, he wasn't satisfied unless he was going Mach 7 in his F-18 Super Hornet. My sister and I, my brother was the favorite. He was the baby. So uh, everybody knew it. He had the coat of many colors and we all gave it to him. We loved my little brother. But my sister and I, we had some issues growing up. Now, I don't know. You probably had a great relationship with your siblings growing up. But me and my sister, I would do things to her. She would do things to me. And we had this little routine that when she would do something to me, I would run after her to give it to her. And you know what she would do? She would run to her room. 
And as she was running to her room, I knew what she was going to do. She was going to slam that door and lock it so I couldn't get to her. So I did everything I could to get to her before she could lock that door. And when she was pushing on that door to shut it, I'm pushing on that door to bring it down because I wanted to get in and do something that I probably shouldn't do as a brother. It's a great picture. And here it is. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says something to open our eyes. Listen carefully. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And Omicron, Megatron, Kachikatron is not going to stop me from building my church. Listen carefully. He says, I will build my church. I am not concerned about the church. He will build his church. He may not build churches that are not his but he will build his church. He says, I will build my church, and listen carefully, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I think as believers, sometimes we've got the wrong visual of this. We think hell is outside the door trying to bust in, and we're holding the door hoping that hell does not get in. No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm the older brother and I'm charging through the door and trust me, I'm stronger than you gates of hell and the church is going to march in and take your territory. Amen? Amen. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But you better believe it's going to take some effort. And you better believe you're going to have to pray It's going to be blood, sweat, and tears. Because if Jesus Christ was willing to lose Stephen for the sake of the Apostle Paul to learn the gospel of grace, you better believe it's going to cost you something to open doors. Expect great opposition. And you might be thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, Chad, really? Well, that's what the Church of Philadelphia was thinking. Look what Jesus says to them. Go back with me to Revelation chapter 3. Look what he says. I know your works, verse 8. See, I've set before you an open door. No one can shut it. For you have a little strength. You ever feel outnumbered? You ever feel like you're the only one in the room that believes in creation? Just go to a public school. Do you ever feel like you're the only one at work that can talk without explicatives? Do you ever feel like, what am I going to do? Do you ever feel like you're the only Christian? Well, it's true. You probably are. Jesus made it very clear the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. We are few. There is always going to be more of people that don't believe than there will be believers. Listen to that carefully. You'll always feel outnumbered. You'll always feel insignificant. You're always going to feel like, what can I do? And what I love about Jesus is he recognizes that. I'm going to open a great door for you, and I know what you're thinking. You've got just a little bit of strength. I know you're thinking you're outnumbered. I know you're thinking you're insignificant. I know what you're thinking, that you've got this little bit of strength. But he says to that church, he says to you, I'm still opening the door for you. Because here's what God does with little strength. I want to remind you of Gideon's army. Gideon got too many guys. Get rid of them. 
And he whittles them down to about 300 men fighting thousands. And Gideon had the victory. Paul, how am I going to move forward? I've got this weakness. And Jesus shows up and says, Paul, that's right where I want you. In your weakness, I am strong. My grace is sufficient for you. I know you're outnumbered. I know what you feel. I know you think you've got a little strength. But I'm your God. And I'm on your side. And watch Philadelphia. Watch South Bay. What I do with you. Amen? And so here's my encouragement my last scripture in Matthew's gospel, chapter 7. Matthew's gospel, chapter 7, Jesus is communicating to the church, the disciples, there on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says something so powerful that we need to listen to. Ask, and it will be given to you. Matthew 7, 7, seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Father, I come before you in Jesus' name, and I just ask now, I'm knocking. Give us open doors. Help us to recognize those doors when they open. And if need be, Lord, let us charge until we bust in and break down the kingdom of hell. So I pray for family members. I pray for neighbors. I pray for cashiers workmates. I pray those we play football with, soccer with. I pray those we play American football with. I pray play those that we interact with in our daily world. Open up doors for us, Lord. Because we desire to see people saved and rescued from hell like you rescued us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? Church, at the end of service, we're going to memorize scripture. Don't be overwhelmed, you of little strength. Wait a second. I want you to take a look at the screen. And this is a verse, a Salem moment, a time for us to stop and reflect on what we just learned. Listen, Selah, Matthew 7, 7, knock and it will be opened to you. That's our memory verse. You can do it. Say it with me. Matthew 7, 7, knock and it will be opened to you. Okay, little strength, not so great. Let's try it one time. Now let's ask Jesus to help us, okay? Say it with me. Matthew 7, 7, knock and it will. Oh, look who can memorize a verse. I have a challenge to change. A challenge for you to leave this message with. Take a look at the screen. Start knocking. Start knocking. Because Jesus made a promise. If you knock, I'm going to open. And maybe it's your brother. Maybe it's your sister. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's your cashier that you always see. Maybe it's your neighbor that you walk with. Or maybe it's the neighbor that you can't stand. Start knocking. And watch how God will open. Thanks for listening. And we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.